Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. It's a big question, isn't it? Keeping the lights on, air conditioners and heaters running, industry powered up. Will there actually, though, be a power gap in coming years? As I mentioned, the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, is warning of possible electricity shortfalls. If, as coal and gas power generation is decommissioned, which is rapidly happening, but the supply and connection of new of renewably sourced power can't provide capacity to meet demand. AEMO is highlighting the need for investment in adequate power generation as well as short-term storage and transmission to ensure reliable energy supply. And there does seem to be a plethora of ideas uh, supported by some optimistic advocates. Sun cable, stored hydro dams, huge solar arrays, concentrated solar solar panels on nation's car parks and so on and so forth. To get a gauge on how feasible these big projects are and to look at the question of whether or not Australia can overcome a looming energy generation gap, we've got three big thinkers on tonight when it comes to renewable energy. Alison Reeve is the Climate Change and Energy Deputy Program Director of the Grattan Institute with 20 years of experience in climate change, clean energy policy and technology in private and public and academic spaces, as well as not-for-profits. Alison, good evening to you. Welcome to Nightlife. Thanks, Phil. Nice to be here. Uh, yes, lovely to have you with us. Professor Bruce Mountain is with us too. He's Director of the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University, well-known Australian energy economist whose research and advisory work has focused on all sorts of things, the economic regulation of network monopolies. He's also been a long-standing advisor to governments and regulators and market participants as well. Bruce, good evening to you. Hi, Philip. Hello. Yeah, and great to have you with us too. And also joining us from the ANU, the ANU's College of Engineering, Computing and Cybernetics, is Professor Andrew Blakers. Andrew's career research focuses on solar energy. He's invented solar cells and in recent years contributed to analysis of the 100% renewable energy futures, including a global search for pumped hydro energy storage sites. Andrew, terrific to have you with us as well. Hello. Alison, can I start with you? Let, can we talk for a, a bit about Sun Cable, this huge project uh, that was pushed by two billionaires who joined forces to push the project forward. Essentially, it was a huge solar farm supplying something like 20 gigawatts of solar, massive battery storage to match, and the power was going to be cabled to Darwin, but then, interestingly, exported via a 4,200 kilometre subsea cable to Singapore, where it would be sold on an international energy market. The whole thing, uh, as I say, presumably Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest, they're not known for not knowing what they're supposed to be doing. So it uh, plenty of people say the, the technology was there. The company is currently in administration after two of them have fallen out. Uh, what do you think about this project anyway? The, is it, is it, was it ever feasible? Is it feasible? Might it be revived? Look, I think it's you're certainly right that it's a hugely ambitious project. Just to put it in context, this is a 20 gigawatt solar farm. That's 10 times the total amount of solar installed in, in Australia in a single year. So, you know, it's talking about doing something that's about 20 times the scale of what we're capable of doing across a whole country mm. um, in, in a year at the moment. A lot needs to go right with projects like that, but it really hinges on two things. Can you get connected to the grid? And can you get someone to buy your power? Now, Sun Cable was kind of managing the first because it was building its own grid. It wasn't having to rely on connecting to a grid that was owned and operated by someone else. But on the second, 
they don't really have beyond being able to sell some of that power to Darwin. Um, they didn't have a customer for the power and these big projects, because they're really, really capital intensive. Um, if you want to be able to borrow the money in order to invest in these projects, the banks will not talk to you unless you've got someone who's agreed to buy the power from you. And that's really what they don't have yet. Well, it's, it's just, I mean, at first glance, it seemed rather weird se- sending it all the way to in, to Singapore. Who were they hoping to sell it to there? Yeah, I mean, Singapore um, imports some of its electricity and, you know, buys from Malaysia, for example, but mm. it also generates some of its own. Um, it's, you know, its electricity demand is growing like it is for everywhere. And like everywhere, it's trying to figure out how to make the electricity cheaper and cleaner. But Singapore's also got other options, right? It already buys from Malaysia. It signed an agreement last year with Vietnam to sell, to buy renewable energy from Singapore. And Vietnam is a heck of a lot closer. It would still involve an undersea cable, um, but it's a lot shorter and it's in much shallower water as well. So, you know, I think Australia was always having to overcome that distance and the cost of that cable, and we would have to be able to supply our energy much, much cheaper than all of the other people um, that Singapore could buy from, and Singapore would have to be comfortable with the risk of that long cable because undersea cables do fail. Um, yeah, all, and, all of know, it, they, they all of it seems unlikely, isn't it? But as I said, I mean, Mike Cannon Brooks and, and Twiggy Forrest aren't known for for crackpot schemes. I mean, <laughs> was it a crackpot scheme? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I don't sort of you know if you want to know how they fell out, you'd probably have to ask them directly. But um, the thing I'd observe is that they have both built successful businesses, but they've done it quite differently. So Andrew Andrew Forrest has come from mining and. In mining, you build really big things, but you also keep really, really close control over your costs. Um, my, Mike Cannonbrooks comes from sort of IT startup world. The business model there is often that you just burn through a whole lot of investor cash in order to get really, really exponential growth to get you to the point where you're so big, you dominate all your mm. other competitors. And it's actually not really clear which of these models is actually the right one for a mega project like Sun Cable, because it's kind of got elements of both, right? You have to build really, really big things, but you also have to be able to dominate to the extent that you can crowd other people out of the market. Mm. Yeah, Andrew, to you, I mean, when I heard about and read about this, I, I thought, well, why why are you sending all this electricity to Singapore? Why, why isn't we just being used to simply feed into the Australian market. How, how much difference would it make to the Australian market if we could suddenly had 20 gigawatts of solar coming on stream into the Australian market? Well, ever since I first heard of Sun Cable, I thought, why don't you turn it around and go south, yeah. at least for the first 20 or 30 gigawatts? So it would have to be a very different project. Um, the Northern Territory, northern part of the Northern Territory has no wind. It's also got no pumped hydro opportunities or very few. Mm-hmm. So that means that you're stuck only with solar and the sun never shines at night and you're stuck with um, battery storage, which is pretty expensive. The long cable will break during um, plate tectonic movements and so Singapore would need to protect itself in the event of losing that cable in the space of half a second, suddenly losing 10 or 15% of its energy supply very quickly. Um, If the uh, cable were... To be placed from Townsville down to 
say Wagga or Alice Springs to Wagga, then in both Townsville and Alice Springs, there's excellent sunshine, there's excellent wind. The sunshine is often counter-correlated with southern sunshine. Um, the thing that drives the cost of storage in the in a fully renewable Australian electricity system is a wet, windless week in winter in the south. And uh, Alice Springs and Townsville happen to be quite sunny and quite windy with quite different weather systems from the south. And it's very clear from uh, careful modelling that big solar and wind combined systems a couple of thousand kilometres north of Wagga, coupled with the excellent pumped hydro opportunities in both Alice Springs and Townsville, mm -hmm. means that you can substantially reduce the amount of storage you need to provide a stable electricity system. Mm. Yeah, what, why? <laughs> what, why isn't that being done in relation to Suncat? What, 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 what on earth prompted the idea to sell it overseas? Do you I think, think you'd have to ask the proponents. <laughs> well, no, I agree. I agree. That's a proper. It's a question, but but did, does it make any sense to you on the surface? Uh, I would say it would be a second or third or fourth step. You, know, you build your twenty gigawatts of solar and wind, hmm. and you learn an awful lot. And then you might say, well, perhaps Indonesia in particular would be interested in Australian solar. But it has to be said that Indonesia has incredibly large opportunities for its own solar because Indonesia is the world's largest tropical archipelago. There are never tropical storms in the tropics. And in fact, we calculated that Indonesia has enough maritime area in its inland sea to supply the entire world with all of the electricity it would ever need. In other words, Indonesia can go it alone. It does not need Australian sunshine. Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the economics of Bruce bringing you in here. What are your thoughts on on Sun Cable? You're an energy economist. Did the sun, did any of this, these sums add up to you? Um, well, Philip, um, on Sun Cable, as on so many of these uh, massive engineering projects, um, frankly, us commentators really don't have the detail necessary to assess them in large measure. Hmm. Um, so uh, the, 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 the thing that I find most exciting about this is that two very wealthy Australians who are well adept at taking big risks uh, have invested a great deal of their own money. They've co-opted a few other rich Australians to join their club and uh, they have been dispensing that money, seeking to understand better the opportunity and the risks and the costs and so on. And that, for me, is the most exciting thing here, the innovation and the risk-taking. Um, I just don't know whether it will succeed. Uh, as we've discussed, there are, there are big risks involved and at face value, there's many questions to ask why you're not using the south rather than exporting north and why you're going 4,000 kilometres and so on. Um, but uh, I think that's all fine. This is not government spending public money uh, sort of speculating. These are wealthy private individuals who are mm. seeking to find out. And for me, that's the most exciting thing. Um, if I were a betting man, I imagine something will come of this. I don't know quite what it will be. 
Um, but I doubt that those individuals would uh, walk away from their commitment, which is very public on this, without some kind of return. Hmm. Alison, does the does Australia have, or does the world have, uh, enough solar panel manufacturing capacity and cable capacity to make these big projects happen quickly? Anyway, um, that's a that's a really good question. That is one of the challenges about the energy transition in general is how do you scale up the manufacturing that you need to uh, support it? Because we don't make um, any of these things here, and- do we? We don't make them here. We do import them from overseas, and that is something that we're seeing kicking through renewable projects of all kinds at the moment is just the whole, the kind of, you know, chaos that is still coming through global supply chains from the sort of from COVID and from shutdowns and and all of that sort of stuff is still there. Um, I mean, just looking at, you know, if we sort of move away from Sun Cable at the moment and just look at the um, renewable projects that are planned in the Australian market, those add about 10% to the demand for steel in the whole country for a whole decade just to build those projects. Mm. And that is before you get into building um, accelerated build of the tra- of transmission lines, which is what the, the current government is trying to do and so on. And at the same time, we're trying to build the inland rail, we're trying to build West Connects, we're trying to build, you know, pro- big infrastructure projects in other areas of the country that are not energy projects. And you get this competition for materials, um, for labour, um, for engineers who can design these things and sign them off and commission them and so on. And so there is actually a real pinch point around just where this ambition meets the physical world and the constraints of that. Mm. Yeah, Andrew, what you're saying is that there is, that in theory, well, actually, I suppose this is a threshold question. Are we trying to solve in any of this, are we trying to solve, I want to talk about transmission in a moment. I understand the transmission network is no good at the moment. We need to we need to do a lot of work on it. But are we trying to, Is the, in other words, is the technology all here? It's just a matter of capital and deployment, or are there things we haven't quite invented or developed yet which we are going to need? The technology for the first 80% of greenhouse gas emission depression is all here. Mm-hmm. It's solar, it's wind, it's transmission, it's pumped hydro storage, it's battery storage, it's electric vehicles, and it's heaters. Right. All of this is off the shelf in vast quantity. The chemical industry is and the synthetic aviation fuel to replace uh, fossil fuel um, fuel is not yet here industrially but that we can we've got another decade before we really have to get stuck into that that's the last 20 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions uh, plus uh, of course some, something from agriculture so the technology is all here we really do need to get on with it there's no constraints but there are bottlenecks from time to time and there's a bottleneck. There was a bottleneck on hyperpure silicon for solar cells. That's starting to resolve now. There'll be a bottleneck on glass next or steel or whatever. But hey, it's great for business. This is a fantastic business opportunity. And in order to decarbonize the world, to have a fully affluent, fully decarbonized world by second half of the century, we need to build about a hundred. Uh, terawatts, 100,000 gigawatts of solar and wind at a very rough cost of $100 trillion. Mm. So that's... Uh, you mean four, in the, in the, you're, talking, about, you're talking in the world? 
in the world. Yeah. So this is going to be bigger than the car industry. It, it's going to be one of the world's three or four top industries. Mm. We... It's worth, add, it's worth yeah, just adding on. to that, though, because awesome. uh, often people hear that figure, you know, for this many trillions and trillions of dollars and go, wow, that's going to be really expensive. You've got to remember that if we didn't do that, we would have to spend something like that sum or more building something else so that the light stayed on, whether that was new coal power stations or new nuclear power stations or whatever, right? Those are also expensive things to build. So it sounds like a really big figure, but a lot of it is actually just money that we would have spent on something else to get the same end. In particular, coal, oil and gas. I 100% agree with you, Alison. Yeah, Alison, that, that, that's an interesting question. Does the world have, and I've heard this argued, that there's almost a tipping point that's going to be reached soon when the world will not have enough money to abate what the problem is that we probably do at the moment, but there will come a point when we don't. Okay, so I'm I'm not a macroeconomist, and Bruce, you can pull me up if I'm not if I'm not right on this. But money is essentially the the supply of money is not finite, right? But money is created effectively when people borrow and agree that you know they will use that money to create an asset that will generate income that will pay back that loan so i i don't think it's possible that we run out of money and um so bruce, bruce is um is not you know shaking his head or anything at me so <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure they're right here so it, it is, but it's a question of what we want to spend that money on, right? Um, you know, there's a, a new report that's just come out from the International Renewable Energy Agency that's saying that the um, the large multinational banks have actually increased what they've been spending on fossil fuels in the last year, around 100, US uh, $750 billion per year. Um so that is money that is going into something that it could be going into renewable investment. Now, you know, renewable investment is at a record high, but it needs to be about four times larger than what it is now. But the way to get that is to stop investing that money into fossil fuels. Mm. Big projects in the renewable energy space. Alison Reeves with us, just who, who you just heard speaking from Grattan, uh, the Grattan Institute. Professor Bruce Mountain's with us from the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. And Andrew Blakers, Professor Blakers from the ANU's College of Engineering. Just to you on that, um, Bruce, because Alison was deferring to you as an energy economist here. Do you agree with that general analysis? That that I mean, in other words, the, the the threshold question is: Does the world have the resources, the financial resources, to abate what we have to abate? Uh, yeah, a, a very interesting question. I too claim no macro uh, um, views, and and it's one of the fascinating things to me the way money is made and fractional lending. Um, but I, I tend to think a lot of that macro is is more art than science. So I'm not sure that anyone else really knows, frankly. But but to the gist of the discussion, I think Andrew's quite right. A lot of the technology innovation exists um it's about marshalling the resources mm. uh if i was to guess i would imagine the biggest blockages are really institutional they're around our capability to govern a transition to drastically shift our energy preferences from fossil to clean and and that's a huge task. We subsidise fossil fuels globally 
orders of magnitude more despite the climate crisis than we do wind and solar. Mm -hmm. And those subsidies and institutional arrangements are deeply stuck. There are vested interests in not changing those. Um, so I think our, our biggest challenges are, are, of course, engineering innovation is essential, but I, I tend to think the engineers are always so much further ahead than the social scientists. And uh, I think the biggest challenges for us are really to catch up as a society to mm. implement the innovations that the engineers uh, churn out for us with such speed. Yeah. But to Alison and, and Andrew, so your because this is a, an issue, isn't it? if Australia decided to build something like Sun Cable for domestic consumption, uh, north of Wagga or north of Alice Springs, as Andrew was suggesting, are there resources available? I mean, uh, can the world simply s- supply enough solar panels and wiring to make this actually happen, or might the project? have to wait and wait because the there's a huge demand for these resources from everywhere in the world. That is true. Um, I mean, some of this comes down to what you want to pay to build the project. Mm. Um, you know, you do get, when you build very large things at scale, you get scale effects that make it cheaper per unit. But um, it also means, you know, everyone particularly Europe at the moment, is trying to build a lot of renewables because they're trying to transition away from from gas and coal. Um, I'm hearing from people in the renewables industry that, you know, that there are effectively queues for stuff at the moment. You know, if you're you're ordering equipment from overseas, you're having to wait a lot longer than you you used to. Um, If you need someone to come from overseas to install that equipment, you're having to wait for longer for that person Mm. because there are more jobs somewhere else. Um, you know, I think there's there are there are two really big things that are affecting this market globally. One is what's going on in Europe. The other one is going to be the Inflation Reduction Act in the US because that is going to pump an enormous amount of money into transitioning the, the energy sector in the US. Now, the trick for us then as a country is how well we can, you know, those two things together will actually bring about price reductions. So the trick for us is can we ride that rather than be squeezed um, be squeezed by it? I don't yeah. have a magic solution for <laughs> I know, that. but it gets back to age-old questions, which mm-hmm. is about the competition for resources, doesn't it? Cameron from Eagleby's got uh, a query. Hi, Cameron. Hi, how are you? Not bad. Um, I'm not very intelligent, but I just wonder where all the cobalt, lithium and copper is going to come from to put batteries in all these cars. And then if it's, we use the... Um, Hydrogen cars, they complicate things by making a different form of petrol or water, to, so we have to buy it at a petrol station. I think we're all getting ripped off. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's well. I suppose it gets back to, to Alison that 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 question we we said before: Does the world have enough resources to actually affect this transition? You're saying y- probably yes. Probably yes. I mean, Australia's got about half of the world's um, known resources of lithium. Mm. Mm. Um, so we're actually quite well placed to supply a lot of these components. We have um, large amounts of cobalt in Australia as well. Um, we've got zinc, we've got copper, we've got nickel. Um, so this is another part of this whole story is that because we also have a lot of mineral resources that will be in high demand for the energy transition, we're really well placed to um, to be part of that. 
I think the other thing here is that we've also got an opportunity in this transition to do this a lot better than than what we did, you know, with that with the previous life. So, you know, if we are going into a world where we're going to be building lots of batteries, we can think about how to make those batteries recyclable from the beginning, rather than having to try and retrofit recycling and materials reclamation and so on onto the process when it's already been running for 50 years, which is how things get recycled at the moment. So we've also got the the opportunity there. Um, On the sort of the hydrogen story, it's my view that hydrogen is not going to really be a big part um, of the light vehicle story. So for, you know, just our ordinary passenger cars and that sort of thing, Batteries are just better um, than that. And as, you know, as um, the caller pointed out, um, you have to build a whole infrastructure to go with hydrogen, which is effectively a whole parallel set of of petrol stations. And then you have to build a whole supply chain to get the hydrogen to those petrol stations. And I think when you put all of that together, electric cars just look so much better because we've already got an electric electricity network. You've already probably got a PowerPoint in your garage um, that you can use to charge it or that can be modified so that you can use to charge it and it just makes it it's just a lot easier and it will be a lot cheaper um and those cars are in some ways better as mm. well so yeah. all right andrew can i go back to you uh, you say you, you say that the, the problem is not there's not there's not a problem to be solved that that australia could produce practically all the renewable it needs together with pumped hydro and batteries uh Where's the pumped hydro going to come from apart from the Snowy Scheme? Australia's got about 3,000 good off-river pumped hydro sites, which is about 300 times more than it actually needs Mm -hmm. to provide all of the energy storage. So um, it's not. The market will sort out how the storage question will be resolved, and there's uh, several ways to do it. There's pumped hydro, there's batteries, there's demand management. And very importantly, there's strong interconnection between states. So if each state tries to get to 100% renewables alone, compared with connecting each state strongly with transmission, you need five times less storage if you strongly interconnect every state. So transmission looks like storage. So there's many, many solutions, and there's enough that we can just let the market sort out which it prefers, and almost certainly it'll be a mix of all of them. Mm. Uh, I'd just like to address briefly the question of do we have enough resources? The plain and simple answer is yes, there will be bottlenecks. The bottleneck will move around. Um, In any rapidly growing industry, there's always bottlenecks, but there is no significant fundamental constraint, not land, not raw materials, uh, nothing. It's Mm. all available in large quantity. In, how is it going to look in a general sense, Andrew? Is, it, is At the moment, we have a model of big generators spinning turbines which produce electricity and go out through the generation network, and that's pretty much how it works. And we're in the process now of seemingly decentralising this. There's a whole lot of rooftop solar. There's some battery, etc. Is the network of the future going to be highly decentralised? In other words... There's not going to be one central component. There are going to be millions of components. Yes, it's going to be a, a real network, and that confers lots of advantages in resilience. It's very, very hard to break a true network. That's why the internet works so well. You can take out this spoke or that spoke, and it hardly makes any difference because you've got so many spokes. Hmm. To Bruce, how do you see pumped hydro as a viable as a solution? 
Um, yeah, so uh, in my work, I've often ended up getting quite involved at a micro level on a number of issues. And I quite quickly am humbled by that. When you look at things from 30,000 feet, you see technology and you see resources and, and you see will and so on, and it looks intensely solvable. When you get down to nuts and bolts, it's often uh, terribly difficult and there's a great deal of failure that's occurring. Um, I, I study storage to some degree, seeking to understand the technology, but mostly seeking to understand the economics. Um, we, we are seeing in chemical storage replicable devices, uh, i.e. devices that can be reproduced many times and you get scale economy in manufacturing, uh, you get all the underlying cost reduction curves that you see in technology, solar panels being the obvious case in point that we know well, but microchips and radios and cars, which actually combine a whole range of those different goods. Uh, whereas pumped hydro tends to be bespoke, uh, it tends to be around the geology or the mine or the opportunity. And that specificity often uh, means you need to learn a whole bunch of things and you need to master a whole bunch of technical challenges. So I wonder the extent to which uh, pumped hydro will compete against technologies which can be manufactured at scale and to which there is absolutely enormous investor interest uh, and scale um, it is being put into the industry to build out batteries of different sizes. So if I was a betting man, I'd imagine uh, chemical solutions uh, that can be manufactured would, would come to dominate. And indeed, that's what we're seeing in the market so far. But um, I, I, I don't think it's appropriate to argue these things too strongly. I, I don't know. And I don't think anyone else um, knows with any clarity. There's a great deal to be learned. Um, but I would stress that this transition is a whole lot more complex than it appears from a 30,000-foot view of the resources and the technology. Mm. Alison, do we need any more rooftop solar or do we, or would we be, be, be investing in large, huge array solar farms? I think that depends on on what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, you do get efficiencies from from large top solar farms, but you also get, um, you know, you can do things like with rooftop solar if you you can put it into areas where you've otherwise got a network constraint, and that allows you to avoid having to invest in new network. So, you know, you, you sort of a bit swings and roundabouty really. I mean, I think, and I think sort of just flipping back to the storage thing as well. We're actually probably going to do all of the things and it's just trying to figure out what the mix of that is and particularly mm. how to get that to make financial sense. One of the things that's sort of happening with rooftop solar at the moment um, is that we haven't, we've put an enormous amount of it in in Australia. We've got, I think, more per, like certainly at a household level than most other countries in the world. But um, we haven't yet figured out how to deal with the fact that that all comes on at the, in the middle of the day and starts to actually get to the point where you get in some areas of the energy market a negative cost of energy during the day because there is so much solar mm. coming on. We haven't figured out how to adjust 
our energy demand to take advantage of that, right? We and and it's kind of interesting because we've done this before. Like when we built the we made that big investment in coal-fired generators, we actually deliberately shifted a lot of load to the middle of the night so that the coal generators didn't have to ramp down. Um, so we need to come up with something similar, whether that's, you know, that we all charge our electric cars during the middle of the day or we all, you know, run our, um, heat up all our water during the middle of the day and just store that heat in it and, and you know, use it later on. We need to figure out ways to do that, to take advantage of that solar as well. And so this is why Bruce is right when he says it's actually a lot more complicated than just, you know, yay, solar panels, um, because we, we have to actually figure out how do we, you know, adjust our economy to, to take the best advantage of, mm. of those um, those technologies, whatever they are. Who's in charge of this, Alison? Is anybody? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, I mean, Australia's energy market is largely been privatised and deaggregated. It has. It has. So, we, we sold everything. Um, we sold the poles, wires, and generators. Yeah. And generators. So the the, yeah, so pu- what that means the public that really it, don't, owns nothing anymore. So who's in charge? It sort of depends where you are. Like if if you're in Queensland, it's still mostly publicly owned, right? Um, in New South Wales, the networks are still publicly owned. The generators aren't. Um, what sort of no, happens I don't think then? That's is not that... so in New South Wales. No, poles and wires um, have been sold in New South Wales. I don't. No, no, no. Two, two of the three are part sold, and one of the three is owned by the state government, and the transmission entity is still half owned by the state government. That's true. That's true. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what what that sort of means is what we've gone to is rather than the government being in charge of running it, what they do is they set the rules mm. around, you know. So I mean, one one thing that's really pertinent to the stuff that you mentioned at the beginning of the hour um, is the reliability standard. So that just sort of says there's only a certain number of minutes per year when the lights can go out, and then they leave it to the market to meet that standard. Um, the same with, you know, if you want to connect your um, generator to the grid, there are standards that you have to meet about how you connect. There are stand, you know, there are rules about how you behave in the market, about when you can sell your energy, and 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 those sorts of things. So it's all very, it's all very rules based rather than engineering based. That's a challenge at the moment because we have a set of rules that were set up for a market that was in steady state, not a market that was going through a massive transition, and the rules haven't always been keeping up with what's been going on. Mm. Yeah, that said, um, we need to observe that Australia obviously has the best method of managing its market, and this is basically a a free market as Mm. far as possible. Um, How do I know that? Simple. Australia is generating twice as much solar per person as any other country. It it is a remarkable fact that we are generating twice as much solar per person as Spain, Chile, Germany and Netherlands, which are the second set of countries, and three times as much as China. Uh, And the, the reason for this is that there has been widespread price discovery in Australia's relatively open electricity market. Mm hmm. And people have discovered that solar is cheaper than running flat coal power stations and cheaper than gas. Mm. Whereas in regulated monopolies in all other countries, in many other countries, um, they're still stuck in the fossil fuel age. Mm. And we're not. Bruce, can I go back to you on, on transmission networks? Because 
This is a huge problem, isn't it? And again, back to you, Alison, on this resource question here. But one of the big things we're talking about with mass solar arrays, et cetera, and indeed renewables generally, is that they are not connected or not going to be built in current in inside the current grid distribution transmission line. So all these the, the transmission and grid network is going to have to be rewired. That's a huge resource problem. It's also a huge engineering problem because the grid was built over many generations, and we're talking about trying to do it in one or two, aren't we? Yeah, Philip, here too, you keep drawing attention to the interesting, difficult problems. Um, As a proportion of the cost of supply, electricity transmission, which is the high voltage elements of the grid, Mm. is the smallest single category of all. It's typically less in a customer's bill than the marketing costs and the sales costs to, you know, to the end customer. Um, so in terms of dollars involved, it's it's not huge, but it is almost certainly going to become quite a lot bigger as more of our production comes from distributed wind and solar farms and storage in different bits of our, our country. This is um, a hugely heated and contentious bit of the electricity uh, energy market debate at the moment. Um And the challenges are partly around cost and implication for local communities and land use and land access and the environmental access. The big transmission lines need huge easements. And uh, one of our largest uses of land in Australia after roads is actually lines, these these lines where you need to chop, you know, chop trees down. Um, And farmland, certainly for the very high voltage lines, can be hard to use. uh, I I, th- I think the underlying economics is contested in the market, and I don't think yet the truth of the matter has been revealed in particular by the energy market operator. Um, in a wind and solar world, as, as has been pointed out, we've got fantastic wind and solar resources everywhere. We've got fantastic storage everywhere, uh, pumped hydro and chemical storage and what have you, and it doesn't cost terribly much in any part of the south and eastern seaboard to meet your demand. And in the context in which your costs of production are comparable, the case for large scale movement of electricity, which is terribly expensive and terribly difficult to get people to actually agree to, is is actually problematic. And the energy market operator has been seeking to entrench a vision of these massive interconnectors between each of our states. Uh, and they are they are discovering a great deal of opposition in the process. Uh, there's a long way to go on this. There's many fights yet to be had, and there's there's very heated debate on this. There are cases in courts and so on. Um, I think the likely outcome is going to be uh, shorter transmission lines relatively close to our regional load centres. State governments are now each of them taking the bull by the horns and getting directly involved in the growth of their electricity industries in the transition. And I think they're all going to gravitate towards meeting their own needs and we'll, we'll build more transmission. But I think the, the, the lines that are most likely to be built will be relatively short distance to the cities, which is quite contrary to the vision that the energy market operator has mm. basically set out. I think on that too, the other thing that we potentially are not exercising enough imagination around is 
whether or not we can change demand for energy. Australia is actually one of the least productive energy users in the world. So if you can, if you compare how much GDP we get for every unit of energy we consume, we, we perform really poorly compared to other developed countries. Um, you mean we're not using our energy efficiently that, enough, you mean? Yeah, that's right. And you I mean, you also see that in the household level that people will put household, they'll put solar on their roof before they'll put insulation in the ceiling. Insulation in the ceiling will pay itself back within a year or two, whereas solar takes longer. And, you know, it's, it's really only in recent years that solar's actually become, you know, something that pays itself back within the, the, the amount of time you're going to even own the house. Hmm. Um, so I think we're not putting enough effort into thinking, you know, we tend to think, oh, demand is just going to keep growing and growing and therefore we have to build more generation, we have to build more transmission. I think we should actually exercise more imagination about how could we be smarter about how we use energy and can that avoid some of that transmission build? Hmm. That said, in order to fully decarbonise Australia, we need to triple electricity production in order to electrify transport, heating and industry and the chemical industry, including aviation. Mm. So we are going to have three times more generation than we currently have by 2050. Mm. Yeah, but I think that some of that has an assumption built in it about the amount of heat we can, could consume. And that's actually something that we don't, you know, we aren't actually thinking about could we be consuming less heat and so could that number be lower. Ben, just as some uh, listener queries here, Ben in Brisbane says, I'm feeling confused about the comment about transmission lines and it not being costly. This was your point, Bruce. The capital cost is huge. Of course, it's essential. It happens. Your point, Bruce, was simply that as a component of the entire system, it's relatively small, although, of course, the project itself is huge. Yes, that's, that is right. Um, the, the incremental costs of new, new lines of themselves are, are large. Hmm. The, the great irony is when we compare them, or well, not irony, but an interesting fact is, you know, if we do a comparison of what governments spend on education or healthcare or public transport, the electricity transmission outlays are actually very small. They can be accommodated. The challenges uh, are around the land use, the, the, the charging, it can have an incremental effect on large customers who bear more of the transmission charge as a portion of their bill. So it turns out that some of these things, which are a small part of the bill, although each element can be large, it turns out to be very, you know, very, very hard, which is kind of harks back to an earlier point I was making. In trying to understand the transition in the system, it's often things that we don't imagine. There's not a resource constraint generally in a lot of this. There's not a money constraint generally in a lot of this, mm. and yet it's a sticking point. So it's it's really how all of these factors of production, to use the technical jargon term, come together. Mm. And and uh, therein lies a huge challenge with the transmission networks. Yeah, Dean's on the line from Wynyard. Hi, Dean. Oh, hi, Philip. Hi. What's your question, Dean? Um, uh, thank you for taking my call, Philip, and to your guests. Pleasure. Um, a short distance from where I live, we have an iron ore pellet plant uh, producing steel pellets. Oh, you're in northwest port. Tasmania. That's right. That's, that's right. Yeah. Wynyard and the Port Ladder. Uh, that particular little plant takes around uh, five furnaces, about 2,000 horsepower per furnace, driving big fans. I suppose the total plant would probably use about 15,000 electric horsepower. How big a battery would it take to run that plant overnight? Mm. 
uh, Andrew or Alison. This, I mean, a lot of people are. Pu- oh, I'm are pu- letting Andrew answer this one. <laughs> and, I can't and, do that. A lot of fast. people are puzzled by this, aren't they, Andrew? Thinking, well, you know, this is such a vast amount of electricity. How's it going to come from renewables? I think people don't probably haven't understood the capacity of renewables. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much more sunshine than everything else put together. It it's unlimited, completely unlimited. And Tasmania also has uh, really great wind. So the combination of sunshine and wind and transmission to other places to share the bad weather and good weather around and um, demand management all leads to uh, a stable supply of energy, even for heavy industry. For the example you're suggesting, um, there's a very obvious solution, which is going to be in factory thermal stores um, with hot rocks or molten salt or molten silicon as the storage medium. So during the sunshine day, you use electricity to melt this, uh, say, molten silicon, and then you can then run an industrial furnace 24-7 at whatever temperature you like. Mm-hmm. And um, this soaks up vast amounts of negatively priced um, daytime electricity, mm. just like um, charging your, solar, your electric vehicle does the same thing. Yeah. All right, thanks, Dean. Um, just some comment about that too, uh, Andrew. There, there are other concentrated solar projects around too. I mean, Vast Solar is one, founded in 2009. And this is essentially using sunshine to heat up things, salt or whatever, using that stored heat to either transmit as heat to create electricity in other ways. This is a means of storage. I mean, how, how, how near is this technology? How viable is it? And how much of the storage problem that we are going to require to solve will be solved by things like that? Well, at the moment, Concentrated solar is effectively absent from the marketplace. If it can get its costs under control and joins the wind and solar photovoltaics, then great. So um, just wait and see. Mm. I think there's some very interesting work being done by people at the University of Adelaide about how you could use concentrating solar for metals processing as well because, as as Dean um, was pointing out, you need high-temperature heat for that, and that is one thing that you can do with concentrated solar. Um, for people who haven't heard of it before, basically what you have is you have a a huge number of mirrors that are all concentrating the sun onto one point. And so you can make it really, you can either get, you know, a whole lot more light onto a single solar cell, or you can just get a whole lot of heat onto that point. And then you can do interesting things with that heat. Um, one of the downsides about these is that they do take up a lot of space and they're quite, um, maintenance intensive because you've got to keep all those mirrors pointing exactly at the focal point that you want all the sun to go at um and you've got to get them all exactly right you know um so compared to something like conventional solar pv or so solar photovoltaics where you just put them in place and they're you know you have to keep them clean but that's kind of about it um they do have quite a different cost profile and it sort of, I think, comes back a bit to what Bruce was saying before about technology learning curves as well. The learning curve on solar thermal has been quite steep. Oh, sorry, it has not been particularly steep. It's actually been quite slow um, because the projects do often have this bespoke nature to them. And so there's a limit to what you can take from one project as a learning and then apply to the next project you, mm. you can do. Um, they just don't behave like a manufactured product in that way. 
Just one final question. Are we making the same mistakes that Australia has always made, that we have this huge demand, which we solve by buying things from overseas? We have this massive demand for this huge transition project in Australia, for cabling, for panels, for all of these things which we know how to make and could make here but don't. Are we missing a massive opportunity in simply repeating the mistakes of the past, Alison? I think the... um one of the things that's held back Australian manufacturing in, you know, at least in the post-war period was that we decided just to make stuff to just meet the domestic market. And yes, we do have this big boom coming and then, but then we'll go into a steady state thing. If you want to be competitive as a manufacturer, you really need to be able to sell to people other than yourself in order to be able to get the scale up. Um, I, my personal view is that it's fine if we want to buy, you know, buy solar panels from other people because we've got opportunities here that where we can value add to resources that we've already got. So the battery materials that the earlier caller was talking about are one of those, right? You know, I said we had 50% of the world's lithium resources. We have 1% of the world's lithium, actual refined lithium market, mm, right? Okay. We could t- We could go a few steps up that value chain make a lot of money by combining our resources with this cheap available renewable energy that we've got okay. and I think and trade that with other people. I'm going to have Thanks. to I'm going to have to bring it into it because unfortunately time has <laughs> beaten us but it's been a tremendous conversation and I do I do thank uh, all three of you as well. Alison Reeve, Professor Bruce Mountain and uh, Professor Andrew Blakers. Thank you to all three of you. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, an important thing for Australia. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.